Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a glowing orb of sarcasm and Malbec about the plot of an opera, and we will probably ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no idea which opera we're going to talk about, but I have been told who the composer is, and I've been given one minute to summarize as much of their life as I possibly can squeeze into one minute. This week, the composer is Rimsky-Korsakov. One minute on the clock. Ready, set, Go. Nikolai Andreevich Rimsky-Korsakov was born on March 18, 1844, 120 miles east of St. Petersburg, into a Russian noble family. His father had to officially adopt all of his children and get special permission for them to be part of the noble line as he couldn't marry their mother due to her lower social status. Rimsky took piano lessons in childhood and had a great ear but showed a lack of interest in technique and precision. He preferred literature over music and was infatuated with the sea. He studied to be in the Imperial Navy while also learning piano to improve his social skills. He was introduced by a teacher to another mentor, Balakirov, who encouraged him to keep up with his new hobby of composition, despite his lack of formal training. After several years in the Navy, he spent increasing amounts of time with four other young composers assembled by Balakirov called the Love and Spoonful. Just kidding, it was the Mighty Handful. They were anti-conservatory and considered themselves musically and intellectually superior to the musicians coming out of academia. Rimsky later got hired to become a professor at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, which he was utterly ill-equipped to do, but he faked it till he made it, and he used the opportunity to enhance his own musical skills. Soon after he married Nadezhda Nadezhda Pergold, they had seven children, and Nadezhda was a Bless America. I just... That was really good, by the way. You were don't, very composed. Don't, don't pander to me. No, 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 no. It, I'm, I'm honest. That was really good. You didn't sound like you were trying to sell me something at an auction or list off side effects. It was like professional, collected. It was awesome. But I just want to talk about the part where you said he took piano lessons to improve his social skills. Yeah, so... <laughs> No, I think that's hilarious too. As a former piano major who spent way too much time locked in the piano major practice room, like I kept a pillow in there. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm very aware. As soon as I read that, I was like, well, that was misguided. (laughs) (laughs) Raise your hand if you know pianists. Love you, Jared Miller. Love you so, so, so much. I don't know a lot of pianists who are like, sparkling charismatic personalities they're all very like lovely and subdued until they're not and then they're assholes Uh-oh. <laughs> like this... I, oh i can think of one particularly a british man who's very much like do you know who i am <laughs> but those are the those are like the only two options i think yeah uh, uh yeah think of another one uh you can't <laughs> you got me (laughs) i don't know i don't know if it's for the reason that you're saying it is but yeah you're right i can't did you like my joke about the love and spoonful i loved your joke about the love and spoonful (laughs) (laughs) i did too it wasn't that good but i did love it 
So is that, okay, I never knew why his name was hyphenated. Was it hyphenated because his parents couldn't be married? No, actually. So Rimsky-Korsakov was older than his parents' generation. And it huh. Rimsky was something that like specific members of the Korsakov family were allowed to add to their name as a nod to their apparently Roman, Roman heritage, which I didn't look into further. Hmm. I thought that was interesting too. He had like a great great grandfather or great 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 uncle or something like that who was stepping Catherine the Great for a while. <laughs> Catherine the Great comes into this opera, so that's awesome. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this opera is May Night. Oh, I read a little bit about this. It was his second ever opera. And it is based on a story by Gogol. Okay. And it actually follows the story very, very closely. So shall we just dive on in? Okay. So we have two casts of characters. We have townspeople, because we're in this quaint little peasant village. So the townspeople are the mayor, Levko, the mayor's son, the mayor's sister-in-law, a girl named Hannah, there was a clerk, a distiller, a guy named Kalenic. We're just going to call him the town drunk because that's just what he is. And then there's like a chorus of ladies and village police and village lads and all that. So that's okay. cast one. Cast two is like the fantastical characters. So we have Panochka, who's a Rusalka. I don't know what that means. So a Rusalka, uh, think of like, have you ever seen the opera Rusalka? No. So Rusalka is like a like a drowned, well, in this case, she's a drowned maiden. She's like a, a water sprite who will actually drag men to the bottom and drown oh, them. Okay. It's, I, I mean, it's a legend in like, in a lot of Slavic cultures and there okay. are different versions of the legend, but like the, the, the opera Ruselka is like the little mermaid essentially, but it's without a happy ending and she drags the prince down well, to the, the bottom little, and he dies. The little mermaid doesn't have a happy ending either, unless it's the Disney little mermaid. That's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but okay. she's like a Ruselka in that one. So Got anyway, then there's a whole chorus of Rusalki, which is the plural of Rusalka, I found out. Naturally. And then there is a stepmother. I bet she's super nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so, like I said, we're in this quaint little peasant village in Russia. So hang on, hang on. I gotta ask a question. There's two casts? Kind of. I mean, there's there's one cast, but there are like villager characters and there are fantastical characters. So I just kind of lumped them together. Like, I'm just gonna get ahead of myself if I keep asking questions. I'll wait for you to tell me. What, what were you gonna ask? I'm curious. If it's like parallel storylines or something? Kind of. Okay. Kind of. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Quaint little village in yes. Russia. Uh-huh. And it's the night before Pentecost for some reason. Okay. And the peasants are on the streets and they're singing and they're dancing and they're having a jolly good time as peasants are wont to do. Super, super. Yeah. And then when their jolly peasant song is done, they just disperse and enter Levko, who is our tenor hero, the mayor's son. Yes. And he is playing his bandura, which is, it's like a, it's like a stringed instrument. Yeah, like, like think a of lute. like, it's, yeah, but like super fat with a really small neck. 
Oh, yep. Okay, yep. Yeah, and he's like always playing his bandura. And he's, he's that guy. He's, he's like, that guy. have you guys heard Wonderwall? <laughs> anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> Look at how sensitive I am. <laughs> so he enters, he plays his bandura, and he serenades Hannah inside of her house. Okay. And Hannah comes out to join him, but she's worried that people on the street are going to see them because it's like a public thoroughfare. And also his dad's not too keen on them like being together. So mm. she mm. just doesn't want to be seen together. But then they sing this glorious love duet and we get the impression that, you know, they've been in love for a while. This is sure. a thing that they do often. And there's this grand old house across a lake or a pond. Sometimes they call it a lake. Sometimes they call it a pond. It's just a big pond. We'll go with that. (laughs) And so there's this grand old house across the way. And there is like this legend attached to it. And Hannah says, Loveco, tell me the story of this old house. And he's like, it's not a happy story. And she's like, I promise I won't have nightmares. Just tell me. Is she three? (laughs) She sounds like my (laughs) (laughs) three-year-old. Mama, can I watch the end of Fantasia? You mean the scary one? Yeah. I promise I won't have nightmares and come into your bed. Okay. (laughs) Several hours later, it is very crowded in my bed. I really need to sidetrack. I wasn't going to do it, but here we go. When I was five, I really wanted to watch Jurassic Park. (laughs) And my parents were like, no. You're going to have nightmares. And I insisted that I would not have nightmares. And I was so stubborn about that fact that that night after watching Jurassic Park, I had a very vivid dream about nice dinosaurs going to school. That's impressive. That is some seriously impressive, like, coping. Like, your, your subconscious was on board that's like almost lucid dreaming. We're just really stubborn. <laughs> I mean, yes, but the fact that you were, you're able to, like, at that young of an age, I think I discovered that I had a little bit of control over my dreams when I was about that age, too, because I was having nightmares like crazy. And I remember they were always about getting, like, being lost, being separated from my parents and not being able to find my way back to them. Mm-hmm. And I had a dream once where I, re- I just kind of like remembered that I was dreaming and that I could wake up and I decided that I would go through a door and that that door would put me back in my bedroom. And I did. And it did. And I woke up. That's awesome. So like, I, that's really interesting. I wonder if there's something <clears throat> developmental happening at that age where you suddenly get to like have a little bit of control over your subconscious (laughs) fascinating maybe that's what hannah's doing in this opera (laughs) she's she's like i'm 25 and i still haven't figured out how to do this (laughs) (laughs) i promise they won't have nightmares by the way i forgot to tell you that this is a comedy which why are you grimacing when you say this is a comedy because it's russian and that just I don't seems know like what an, that means. It just seems like it's an, a Russian comedy is not an oxymoron to you. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. It's a good point. Okay. 
Well, we'll just, uh, we'll just, we'll just see how happy the ending actually is. So Levko relents and decides to tell Hannah the story of the house and it's, um, it leads to this amazing aria. The music in this is so good. It's not even like comic sounding. Like the story is comic, but the music is just like lush and Russian and amazing. Cool. Anyway, so the old house used to be home to a widower and his daughter, Panochka. The father marries again. And since it's a fairy tale, the stepmother is obviously evil. <laughs> as you so astutely guessed earlier. Go on. <laughs> One night after going to bed, an angry black cat appears in Panochka's room and frightens her and tries to attack her. And so Panochka strikes first and the cat leaves. And the next morning, the stepmother refuses to come out of her room. But when she does, she has a bandage on her hand um, that corresponds to the paw that Panochka mm -hmm. hit on the cat. So obviously the stepmother's a witch. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> it's the only conclusion. I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> like, let's be real. Let's it's a stepmother. <laughs> All of the signs are there. I mean, it's a stereotype for a reason, am I right? All stereotypes come from... So, so at some point, some stepmothers really sucked. And it got, it got turned into a cultural phenomenon. So thanks a lot, those stepmothers, for sucking. Now all stepmothers have to unpack and unburden themselves from the stepmother trope. That's actually a real deal. Or just like lean into it. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh, God. I didn't know. <laughs> I would rather I would rather toil for many, many years to dissociate myself from the evil stepmother trope were I a stepmother than ever just be a whore I mean so many of those step I mean they're like abusive all these stepmothers are abusive vindictive vain they're bad people these these fairy tale stepmothers mm -hmm. so speaking of bad she convinces the father to banish Panochka from the house and Panochka leaves, and she's really upset, and Jeez. then she drowns what? in you the know, pond. Oh, good. Okay, she drowns in the pond. Um, so, um, hi, Mr. Panochka. Um, Mr. Panochka. <laughs> is she just, like, does she have just, like, solid gold tits? Like, why are you just, like, yeah, we'll send my daughter off into the night. I guess the daughter says something like, the witch has stolen your soul, or something like that as she oh, leaves. Super. Yeah. All right. So she's drowned, and she's a Rusalka now. Okay. And she becomes the leader of all of the Rusalki. The Rusalka. If, if you're gonna be a Rusalka, you may as well be the best of them all, I guess. She just, like... <laughs> drowns instantly and was like all right bitches <laughs> right get it together i'm in charge now <laughs> get in we're going shopping um <laughs> uh, <clears throat> one day the stepmother is walking by the pond i love that you laugh at me when i try to get us back on track <laughs> i know <laughs> 
One day the stepmother is walking by the pond and the Rusalki see her and they grab her and they drag her under thinking to kill her. But somehow being a witch, she figures out how to become a Rusalka herself. And so she is indistinguishable from all of the Rusalki. I mean, that's pretty clever. Got and so she can, she can haunt Panochka always without Panochka knowing who she is. So legend has it, whoever walks by the pond at night, the Panochka comes out and asks that person if they can figure out which one is her stepmother. Ooh, spooky. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. That's very spooky. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> so after the story is over, um, Levko and Hannah have this really long lover goodbye because opera and Hannah goes back inside and the village maidens are just randomly walking down the street singing a sad Rusalka song because that's just like that's normal that's that's normal right that's what peasants do they just that's what I do (laughs) you just sing and dance and and your songs randomly have something to do with the storyline that you are not involved in yeah there's actually a really intricate spy network involved but there's a whole group of us I don't know why you're laughing, Tina. I was going to invite you, but no, I don't think you're taking it seriously. Um, You just announced it to everybody on this podcast. I didn't say who we were. I didn't say that our name was... I didn't say that our name was the walking ladies. <laughs> Damn it. It wasn't a good name anyways. We should have changed it. I'm going to tell you about an opera now. <laughs> In stumbles Kalenik, the town drunk. Yes. And he talks about how he's his own boss and you don't need no mayor to tell you what to do and harumph. Oh, God. Harumph. I added that for color. I liked it. Um, (laughs) He tries to dance in the square with the girls and he tries to kiss them all. Oh, he seems like a really cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So the girls decide to play a trick on him. They tell him he needs to go home. And then they trick him into thinking that the mayor's house is his own house. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not drunk. I don't need to go to bed. Like, he's not drunk enough yet. So he doesn't actually go into the house at this point. And the ladies disperse. Our song and dance is done. We're not needed anymore. And when all is clear, enter the mayor. And he goes to Hannah's house and knocks on the door. And she comes out surprised because the mayor is there. Uh-oh. And he proceeds to hit on her. Uh-huh. You saw that one coming from a mile I away. I did, I did. This is a little little uh, Sweeney Todd-ish right now. Just a little. Like the, the government official swooping in and hitting on the lowly peasant woman that happens to also already be in love with the tenor. Oh, okay, okay. But in this case the father of the guy who's really courting her is hitting on her. Oh, oh, I didn't put that together. The mayor's son. Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, that's awkward. And Levko sees somebody sneaking up to Hannah's house. And so he hides to watch and see what's going on. And he realizes it's his own father. And he's like, oh, that's why dad's ignored me every time I've asked if I could marry Hannah. Gross. And then here's where Catherine the Great comes in. Oh, yay. (laughs) So the mayor 
used to be like a military type guy and he tries to impress Hannah with this story about how one time he was selected to be an escort to Catherine the Great and uh, like he's super impressive because of that and like also he's the mayor so what do you think of that like (laughs) he just like expects all women are gonna fawn over him because of this oh man well and I mean like women probably did dudes that have that inflated sense of importance it's part like compensating and like fragile ego and puffing up and it's part based in power structures and like there's a combination of like women were attracted to men in power because it meant security and also women couldn't say no to men in power because that could mean ruin Mm -hmm. so of course he was confident and thought that all he had to do was like show her his bank statement <laughs> and be like, hey, you want this dick? <laughs> I will say that um, because this is a comedy, it's it's kind of paying homage to the Italian style of writing opera. Mm-hmm. And there's like the, the buffo basso character. And so he's just like the buffoonish bass. Okay. So because of his character type, we're meant to understand that he is just like full of it and he doesn't he's guessed realize. On. He's Gaston. He's like, but he's not even dashing like Gaston. He's just You think like, Gaston is dashing? A little bit. Gaston is kind of my type, but he's a jerk. That's funny. <laughs> I want, what I want is like, if Prince Eric is on this side and Gaston uh-huh. is on this side, I want like less jerk than Gaston, but like more <laughs> physical bulk. Yeah. Assertiveness than <laughs> Prince Eric. Just That's like fair. a combination of the two of them somehow. Yeah, Prince that Eric works out is kind favor. of a wet noodle. <laughs> but he's so cute though. Yeah, but he's a wet noodle. Yeah. Maybe what I want is Prince Eric with a beard. No, because he's still not assertive enough. Don't beard He literally assertive. can't tell that it's the same person. <laughs> I know. I know. Because uh. she's not singing. Because Ariel isn't singing. He can't tell that it's the same person. Suspension it's of disbelief. Very dumb. <laughs> Just very dumb. I recently learned about the term sapiosexual. Tell me is, more. Yeah, so it's a sexual orientation, essentially, that is, or, or, or a family of sexual preference, I guess, that is basically, like, intellect is a primary source of sexual attraction for people who are sapiosexual. And I would say that's fairly high on my list of preferences and so like when you get your prince eric types up in here it doesn't matter how big that dick is it doesn't matter how rippling those pectorals are it doesn't matter how sparkly those blue eyes are and i am a sucker for sparkling blue eyes if they open their mouth and they're done (laughs) yeah it's over yeah (laughs) it's over just all of the attraction just completely fizzles out can't even do it. We're talking Agreed. about a cartoon character right now. Is everybody I still tracking it. with the fact that we're talking about how attracted we are or are not to a Disney cartoon character? 
Anyway. You freaking okay. weirdo. Okay. <laughs> so when we left off, the mayor is hitting on his son's oh girlfriend. God. That was a lengthy digression. <clears throat> and is trying to impress her with a story about Catherine the Great, and she is just not having it. And she stands her ground, and she's like, you should be ashamed of yourself, and I'm going to tell Levko on you. Whoa. And she manages to get away and run back in her house. And there's one point where she's like, yeah, Catherine the Great has been dead for how long? Like, you did this how long ago? I'm not impressed. <laughs> so, points for Hannah. It's cold. So, Levko, who's seen the whole thing, calls all of his little buddies together, the village lads, and he's like, I just made up this great song about the mayor. And we are all going to learn it and sing it about him and play a trick on him. Oh and so <laughs> it's like this really bold, rousing number. And you're like, all right, we're supposed to be on your side. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And that's the end of act one. But I want to keep going because there are three acts. But Yes, we should. Anything to say about act one thus far? I feel like I've already said all the things that I needed to say. And they were all super important and relevant and not totally random at all. Act you're welcome. <laughs> Act two begins inside the mayor's hut. He's having dinner with his sister-in-law, who doesn't get a name. She's just the sister-in-law. And the distiller, again, no name. And <laughs> I mean, he has a very important job. So. Right? It's Russia. And so the distiller talks about the new distillery that he's going to open up after tearing down that old house across the pond. And then in bursts the town drunk, thinking that this is his house and he repeats his claims before about like having a mayor is stupid I'm my own boss and he sees the mayor in this house that he thinks is his own house and he's like wow you sure walk around like you own the place <laughs> so the mayor Ugh. is getting really upset oh dear and then suddenly a rock breaks through the window, startling everyone, and the mayor gets pissed and starts, like, cursing, like, you're hooligans, like, out the window at the unseen perpetrator of rock throwing. <laughs> <laughs> and the distiller tells him, no, 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 you can't curse people like that. Like, don't say evil things. Because <laughs> one time, one time, my mother-in-law had this guy over for dinner, and there were a lot of people at the table, but he ate, like, all of the fritters and didn't share with anybody else. And so in her head, she cursed him and hoped that he would die, and then he dropped dead right there at the dinner table. <laughs> the mayor's like, well, yeah, he was a jerk, and he deserved it. And he goes, no, 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 but then my mother-in-law was haunted by the ghost of this guy for, like, the rest of her life. Like, anytime she would turn a corner, there would be, like, this fritter-eating ghost staring at her. Or, like, anytime she looked at the fireplace. <laughs> just, just... <laughs> I've just got this image of this, like, translucent dude double-fisting some latkes, just staring, glowering <laughs> at you. I I imagined like a golem type creature like crouching in the fireplace just like like eye contact the whole time. Oh yeah. That's much them. that's much spookier than what I was picturing. <laughs> that's much spookier. I mean it's still weird that he's eating like fried goodies <laughs> perpetually just for the rest <laughs> of eternity. Well, for the rest of her life anyway. I mean, I don't know. Once you're once you're consigned to purgatory or, or hauntdom, whichever we want to call it. One of those things is a word. I'll let you guess which one. 
I don't know if you have a, uh, a an expiration date. Like, if the person that you're haunting dies, do you get released? Well, like, if it's your purpose, right? If your purpose is to haunt that person who cursed you to get back at them. Yeah, but couldn't a ghost haunt another ghost? Whoa. <laughs> I don't know about that. Because, like, ghosts are just, like, tormented spirits and, like, couldn't a spirit be tormented by the thing that tormented them while they were alive? On like a different plane? Yeah. Well, the moral of the story is don't curse people because you yeah. could be haunted by a yeah, ghost. Just try to be nice. 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 And after the story, everyone's a little bit spooked yeah and also like everybody's pretty superstitious in here like we have nobody wants to touch and... the plate of fritters that was brought in by the maid just moments before <laughs> how do these fritters get here <laughs> uh where was i oh so everyone's a little bit spooked and suddenly the village lads appear outside and start singing the taunting song that levco taught them at the end of act one mm-hmm. And then the wind through the broken window blows out the candles and there is just general cacophony. So he thinks, I know what happened. He thinks that when he muttered his little curse under his breath at the person that threw the rock through the window, that he invoked the spirit of that person and that they're now a a ghost mob and they blew out his candles with their spookiness. I mean, one could stage it that way. <laughs> is that seriously not where this is going? It's, no. Oh. <laughs> There's this general cacophony. And it's it's kind of like, it's, it's paying homage to like a Rossini finale. If you ever have seen like a Rossini act one finale where every character just sings about how confused they are. <laughs> That's literally what's happening here. That also sounds a little bit like a Stephen Sondheim act one finale. <laughs> like everybody gets a little cameo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's probably the Rossini thing that they're calling back to. And uh, so the mayor is naturally confused. Um, and so he, in the cacophony, just like grabs somebody who he thinks to be the ringleader of, of all of this and throws him in his basement. And um, the, the lads like scatter and cause trouble throughout the town. And the town clerk enters and says, by the way, the village lads are running around and causing trouble, and I caught their leader. And the mayor's like, well then, who's in my basement? So they go to open the basement, and out comes the sister-in-law. And she's really bad. (laughs) Did not see that coming. (laughs) Right? And she berates the mayor and tells him that he's a buffoon and he can't do anything right. And it's kind of satisfying to just like watch this jerk buffoon (laughs) character get a brow beating. It's pretty good. (laughs) So she leaves. She's all upset. And the clerk, the distiller, and the mayor set off to find the true scoundrel. Who they don't know is Levko. Correct. Correct. So they go off to find the true scoundrel. And um, they go out to the clerk's hut where apparently this troublemaker is locked up. And so the clerk, the distiller, and the mayor approach. And they're, like, afraid for their lives because everybody's just feeling a little superstitious after everything that's just gone on. Everybody's just a little bit freaked out. (laughs) Yeah. 
And as they as they approach the hut, they start talking about like, oh, well, it could be the devil inside and it could be these demons or it could be a witch. And they like go on like this for a really long time. And the prisoner inside the hut hears all of it. And the prisoner's like, I'm not a bad person. What are you doing? Trying to kill me? Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> So they talk about this for quite a long time and then they finally like work up the courage to open the doors so they like, cross themselves <laughs> against Satan and they open the door and the prisoner comes out and it's the sister-in-law. What? <laughs> Why is it the sister-in-law? I because thought, they got it over she... on you once. I guess they want to do it again. But that doesn't make any sense. That's like a major plot hole. The first time it was funny. Now I feel like we're reaching. <laughs> and it is. It's like, I, because she was apparently locked up in there before they discovered her in the other, in the basement. So I don't know. Yeah, that's, okay, go on. I don't know if it was like, what's the most ridiculous thing we could do here? It's the sister again. Okay, all right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a theory, but I'm not there yet. Keep going. Okay, so she's super pissed this time like exponentially more pissed than she was last time okay. and then the village police show up and they're like we caught the perpetrator but it's just the town drunk and they're like well as much as we hate him it actually wasn't him because he was in my house when this happened mm -hmm. so the police are like we don't know what to do and like we're afraid that we're just gonna arrest the wrong guy again and we just it's it's a bad night like spirits are out bad things are happening we just don't want to be doing this and the mayor starts threatening them and is like, I once escorted Catherine the Great and would you deny a man so great as me anything? Do your fucking jobs. And then they run off and do their jobs or try to. At any rate, that is the end of act two. Okay. What's your theory? So a lot of his opera is rooted in folk traditions. Mm -hmm. And as we know, Christianity is not the original religion of most continents, if any at all, slash it wasn't an any at all. Um, but Pentecost was like, th that's the night that it is. It's the night before Pentecost. And I grew up Catholic, so I know that Pentecost is the night that the Holy Spirit or the day that the Holy Spirit came down after the death of Christ. I mean, like way after the death of Christ, but um so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into the disciples of Christ following the ascension of Christ into heaven. So I'm curious if, because like, that's the Holy Spirit, right? That's the Holy Ghost. It's the disembodied metaphysical presence of a deity. And it makes me wonder if some of the like pagan imagery of the area if it if it's got kind of a little bit of a Dia de los Muertos kind of a feel to it, if that mm -hmm. holiday has a little bit of a spooky thing tied to it for their pagan adoption of Pentecost, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I might be giving way too much credit though. I'm also feeling like it reminds me of Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little like Scooby Doo. <laughs> you pull the mask off, and it's the sister-in-law again, yeah, right? <laughs> sister-in-law the whole time <laughs> we do see um just because it is taking place in a peasant village it's one of those things where like yes we're seeing christianity i mean it's all set around pentecost but then mm -hmm. we're seeing like these older folk traditions mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. they how they collide with the with christianity and and how they 
can somehow coexist. Mm -hmm. Like these people can still believe in legends about being cursed and a Rusalka in the pond and they can tell themselves it's a story, but they still kind of believe it. But at the same time, they're like dancing in the streets to celebrate the Eve of Pentecost. So it's, it's, I don't know that that happens across the board. When I think about like my Irish heritage and how people in Ireland will still talk about the good folk. Mm-hmm. And it's and it somehow melds with Christianity. There's less of that in my German Catholic heritage. At least it's less evident. Like the mythology piece, the pagan mythology piece is way more subdued in German Catholicism. Correct me if I'm wrong, listening audience. If there's anything, if, you're, if you were raised German Catholic and you've got some kind of I mean, other than like, you know, the Yule log or that, yeah. that's not necessarily German, like the tree thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm not finding anything in my in my initial uh, search for whether there's specifically Russian pagan Pentecost crossover that mm-hmm. would lend itself to like ghost stories, but I'll keep searching. I'll find something, Tina. I'll find something. Well, it is time to take a break. So if you want to do a little research. No, I want to get more wine. Oh, okay. Do that. pond we're on the other side it oh, by no. the house oh, dear. and Levko is there playing his bandura of course and he sings a gorgeous love song today is gonna be the day that it's gonna throw it back to you yeah your wine glass almost acts like a condenser microphone that's great i don't believe that anybody feels the way i do about you now that's wonderwall right is that wonderwall if that's not wonderwall i'm gonna be really embarrassed i think that's wonderwall i think that's wonderwall <laughs> i'm like 90 six percent sure that that's wonderwall anyway <laughs> Levko's singing wonderwall and he's singing about the moon and he's singing about hannah and his desire to marry her and it's really an incredible piece like i hope it makes it into the tenor repertoire because it's gorgeous i'm sorry but i just keep hearing wonderwall while you're saying all of this. <laughs> it's just it's like what every obnoxious acoustic guitar player at every single party has hoped that everyone will say about them <laughs> for all of time. <laughs> While they wear their slouchy beanie. Slouchy beanie, a little bit of scruffle, facial hair. Definitely going to get laid tonight. Definitely not going to make sure she has an orgasm. <laughs> I was talking about Never mind, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an opera. So it's a great piece. You're trying to. I'm trying. You're giving it your best. It's rice. Okay. (laughs) When the song is over, a window suddenly opens in the old house, and none other than Panochka, the Rusalka (gasps) from the tale, appears and begs him to keep playing. 
Oh, that's it, different. Right? The Rusalki, it turns out, love his music, and they really want to dance in the moonlight accompanied <laughs> by him. And when you're surrounded by, like, a swarm of mythical women, you do what they say. You do. It's true. <laughs> and um, so as they're, as they're dancing and everything and having fun, uh, Pinochka begs Levko, as per the legend, to discover which of the Rusalki is her wicked stepmother. Ah, uh, okay. And so so it's, not, it's not that this was different. It's that, that there was a setup that we hadn't been told about before. Got it. Yeah, but like, is he dreaming? Is it real? Like, what's going on? Like, Why we're do simply... we think he's dreaming? Because we're so the, the music suggests it to a certain extent because we're not in... I mean, it's, it's just like this crazy mystical dreamscape of sound. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I believe the staging that I watched of this, they suggested that maybe he dozed off a little bit in his aria mm -hmm. and he wakes back up into the stream. And he I does see. say something like, the air seems sweeter. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. I think they're trying to, to make it a little ambiguous on sure. purpose. Okay. Um, so, Pinochka begs Levko to discover the stepmother. And the Rusalki begin to play this game called Raven, which is, it's like... It's like a theater game where one person says, like, uh, okay, so so somebody says, Raven, what are you looking for? And Raven says, a coin. And they're like, why do you need the coin? To buy a needle. What are you going to do with the needle? And, like, so on and so forth. It's like a stupid improv game that, for some reason, <laughs> women of the water want to play. <laughs> and the first Rusalka who's playing the part of the Raven in this game can't continue. And so Levko takes this to mean that she's not the witch question mark okay <laughs> i mean it seems about as good of a measure for which which dumb as anything else was <laughs> can she <Fair>. float <laughs> <laughs> i mean they all can they're rusalki <laughs> <laughs> except for that time they drowned <laughs> right <laughs> So the second Rusalka who takes over to play the part of the Raven is just a little bit too bold. And also she's a contralto. So obviously she's the witch. God. She's mouthy. And she sings low notes. And she sings low notes. So clearly she's evil. She's a witch. Boner. So the other Rusalki jump on her and drag her down into the depths of the pond and Panochka is free of her treachery forever. Wait, he was right? Yeah. <laughs> of course he was right. Uh, of course that was the distinguishing criteria. Go on. <laughs> Panochka asks Levko how she can reward him. And he tells her, you know, there's this girl I love. My dad's kind of hitting on her and won't let me marry her. And so Panochka gives Levko a letter and says, give this to your father tomorrow and all will be well. Oh my God, what and the so, fuck does that letter say? So she disappears as the sun rises and like this whole magical dreamscape just like melts away and he's still got the letter. So it wasn't a dream and Levko goes, well, I wish I knew what it said, but I can't read. Oh, man. <laughs> that's like a, that's like a pretty major character trait to have not mentioned. <laughs> like, 
three acts in. Oh, by the way, <laughs> despite being the son of the probably most wealthy and educated person in the town, <laughs> I'm illiterate. Well, I mean, whatever. No, I sound elitist. I don't care if you can't read. <laughs> This, I think, actually, to me... I mean, me, I think you should learn. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a pretty important skill. I mean, if you're in a peasant village, though, do you really need to know how to read? I mean, I don't know. You gotta know how to, like, farm stuff. And make it through cold winters. And you have to know that contraltos are evil. Uh-huh. Those are really the important things. It's always a witch. Mm. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, like... I, I, I mentioned earlier that none of the music sounds like like super comic, like you would think like a Rossini right. opera or Gilbert and Sullivan or whatever. It's not like jaunty and, and frothy. It's very like lush and Russian. And this like dream This is the scene. second time. This is the second time you've said lush and Russian. <laughs> I almost said something the first time, but then I was like, nah. <laughs> but then you said it again. <laughs> Lushin Russian. <laughs> I have nothing to add. Go on. <laughs> I just needed to make sure I wasn't alone in noticing. <sighs> As I was saying. The Lushin Russian music. Yeah, and none of it sounds comedic. And then we get like this 20 minute fairy tale dreamscape. Mm -hmm. And it's just like an escape from like whatever comedy there may have been before. And then you end it with, but I can't read. <laughs> and just like the delivery of that line was the only time I lolled during this whole show. <laughs> okay, all right. I really, I really hope it's as abrupt as you made it. <laughs> it is. It really, really is. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. Can't so. take ourselves too seriously now. <laughs> so the mayor and the policemen show up because they're still trying to track down that guy who threw the rock and insulted the mayor. Mm -hmm. And they grab Levko. They're like, this is the guy for sure. And the mayor's like, uh, that's my own son. He's the miscreant? Well, I guess arrest him. <laughs> and he gives his dad the letter and the dad hands it off to the clerk. The mayor does, um, which maybe the mayor can't read, question mark. It would make sense. <laughs> and the clerk opens the letter and starts to read it out loud. And it turns out to be from the former um, commissar who he served with when he was escorting Catherine the Great. So it's somebody who he holds in great esteem and mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. puffs up his own feathers a little bit. Like I was associated with this great man, therefore I'm a great man. So sure. he takes the letter seriously. And the letter literally says, you're an asshole and you're an imbecile and you do nothing but screw things up and so for all of this i order you to marry your son to hannah and if it's not done by the time i come to visit i'm gonna hold you personally responsible <laughs> i mean okay <laughs> and the mayor asked Levko, like dude where'd you get the oh dude I do that a lot. Dude, um, he's like, where'd you get this letter? And Levko says, oh, I uh, went to visit the commissar yesterday and told him I wanted to marry Hannah. And he gave it to me. And by the way, he said he's coming for a visit. And the mayor's like, what? Well, mm, okay, well. Then... Hang on, hang on. Whoa, hang, hang on. Did the mayor tell Levko what was in the letter before Levko said that? 
the the clerk read the letter oh, out the loud clerk. I'm sorry to everybody the clerk read the letter out loud to everybody yeah. and so Levko kind of uses it as a way to exonerate himself because he's like yeah I went to visit him yesterday I have an alibi oh <laughs> lover boy clever uh-huh. boy uh-huh and then he makes up this lie that the commissar is going to come by for dinner and so the mayor's like well fine then you can get married now <laughs> the village wakes up and everybody's like welcoming Pentecost and everybody's in a general good mood and Levko tells Hannah we can get married now and by the way here's the true story of how I got this letter that told my dad that he should marry me to you by like some Rusalka in the pond that I told you about earlier mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and she believes him and just like takes it for what it's worth seems like yeah I mean that adds up <laughs> Yep. So then they get married. The end? Yeah, I mean, there's like a little bit with the town drunk coming back in. He's still drunk. And the sister-in-law <laughs> comes back in and gives the mayor another brow beating. And then the end, yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. Thoughts, reactions? <laughs> it's a little fluffy. But yeah. it's, you know, it's fun. I mean, we can't, we can't, uh... We can't talk about Nazis every week, right? <laughs> I mean, we could. But let's not. <laughs> Apparently, when he wrote it, it, well, when he met his wife, Nadeshta, Nadeshta, I think, um, when, he, when he met her, he already loved the story, and she encouraged him to write an opera based on it from, like, the day that he asked her to marry him. And then when he did write it, it's when he kind of started. Cause so, so he was self-taught. He took a lot of piano lessons, but he was not um, um, classically trained in composition. He didn't go to the conservatory. He just got like miraculously appointed to teach there. I think I, I'm trying to remember where I left yeah, off. Yeah, well, he was, he, was, he was Stravinsky's teacher which wow that's funny which is crazy because the the guy who premiered the role of the mayor was Fyodor Stravinsky Igor Stravinsky's father oh no they way. were that's friends funny. and he was teaching his son composition funny wow well so him being self-taught what I kind of took away from my my research was that he had a sort of um while he was an adult is when he was composing most of his music, right? And so he's different from a lot of other other major composers in the way that he didn't do a, a ton of composing as a child. Mm-hmm. He was like a pretty good piano player as a kid and had like a really good ear, but didn't have a whole bunch of passion for theory or technique or sounds like rhythm was an issue for him. <laughs> and he... Uh, he had to catch up like once he got the bug when he was in his early adulthood and like really started to feel like wow this is actually something i really care about and he got in with the um the mighty five or the mighty handful as they're sometimes also called um then he started to just really he was very sponge-like he just like really absorbed all of the things that he heard from these other musicians and composers and he 
um, kind of emulated them and their musical styles. And he would also um, emulate things that he heard in his travels abroad, like musical themes and musical styles. He heard like Native American music and that apparently- Native American music? Yeah, like apparently oh. in some of his naval travels, he was exposed to that as well as like all sorts of other things. Hmm. And he would start composing in a way that he would create a theme, like a little snippet of music that would make it into an opera or a symphony or what have you and signify, like become a musical signifier for that culture within the context of his music broadly. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. Um, but apparently the May night was where he sort of, cause he spent some time as a composer in sort of a baby stage where he was looked upon by other musicians and even by some of his students as like, okay, like, oh, good for you. You wrote a song in C major. Because he was self-taught, you know, he was self-taught and he was playing catch up like real fast. And he was essentially like staying one lesson ahead of his students for the first couple of years there, just like, learns what he's going to teach them that morning to teach them that afternoon mm -hmm. so i mean he didn't have all sorts of he had exposure and he had a good ear and that probably is what really sped mm -hmm. him along well and you said this earlier he also had synesthesia and i bet yes. you that helped him a lot yeah so synesthesia is really interesting it's it's this condition where it's um, a condition. It's a condi <laughs> is, is it a con is it not a condition? How, how I do you, don't how know. Would you describe it. It's I, like a neurological type, I guess. Yeah, I hate the idea of it being a condition yeah, that just makes it seem right. like there's something wrong with you. No, right, you're right. It's not a condition. It's a like a, a neurological type, I guess, or like a a way that the brain processes sensory input. Um, and synesthesia is a way that the brain processes sensory input, wherein one sense in this case music will present itself to the brain as two different senses so the way that Rimsky-Korsakov heard music was not just hearing music it was also seeing color mm -hmm. so for example he might have heard the key of G major as bright blue <laughs> or he might have heard minor keys as being cranberry red or something like that and so create like being able to just like without even trying because the brain really does need two types of input to really process when you think about reading comprehension when you read a, the sentence the boy chases after the ball most people's brains see at least loosely that the boy is running let's say to the right and that the ball is also farther to the right mm -hmm. and they're both moving to the right. There's two levels of sensory input ideally happening in most comprehensive thought. When you're, when you're taking in a stimulus and you're processing it and you're committing it and your brain is like making kind of an imprint of that information, there's generally two types of stimulus, but when that's happening without any effort whatsoever and to the degree that it's literally, you hear something and you see a thing and it's consistently the same thing every single time when you hear that thing, that is 
I'm, I'm so, I wish I could live a day in the life of somebody with synesthesia. That would be such an interesting way to process information. Do you know anything about that, Tina? <laughs> Thanks for the setup. Yes, we're saying this because Tina has synesthesia. <gasps> but as, as somebody with synesthesia, I will say that I don't have a basis for comparison for what a non-synesthetic brain functions like. And so sure. for you, because you would have the basis for comparison, I'm sure it would be fascinating. Sure, yeah. Do you know what like a non-synesthete or how a non-synesthete process is or you as a non-synesthete process and then you suddenly have this whole extra level of perception. Yeah, yeah. You want me to talk about my synesthesia? Yeah, do you, do you experience sound as color? Like <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have a sexy form of synesthesia. <laughs> I mean, I think it's all sexy. <laughs> well, I mean, there there are some where it's like, I see the color blue and it tastes like pineapple. And like, that's easy to explain <laughs> to people. Sure. But for me, time and space are the same thing. Um, it's called spatial sequential synesthesia. So anything that is an ordinal sequence and anything that is time, it exists. It literally exists in physical space around me. It's like 3D perspective shifting physical space. Okay. And I like, for example, if I think about the composer Beethoven, um, I think on a timeline where I, for some reason, am at the year 1900 and straight ahead of me, it goes up to 1920 and turns left. Um, so Beethoven is to the right of me, maybe about uh, three and a half feet. And that's where the year 1827 exists, because that's the year Beethoven died. So when I think of Beethoven, he is literally right there. <laughs> it's weird. Nobody can see me gesturing. No, I think you did a good job of explaining that in without um, visual aid. That is just so interesting. Like, I'm not trying to fetishize this, but it is just, I'm absolutely tickled. I didn't know that this was a thing at all. <laughs> Surprise! I all. And I just think that it's so, I, I think the, brain, the human brain is so freaking cool all the different variations of the way people can process thought. So does that, so you suggested that it might have made it easier for him to get up to speed in terms um, of his musical abilities? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you think is up to speed. I think it was easier for him to absorb mm -hmm. the musical styles of others because he could literally see it mm -hmm. in addition to hearing it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do wonder if he had perfect pitch. I mean, he did to a certain extent because it always presented itself as the same color. So sure. um, yeah. if you can see it and you know, okay, red equals A440, then you know what pitch to notate if you are, say, like dictating or di taking oral dictation. Sure. So I, I think that probably helped him. I mean, I'm projecting here. No, that's interesting. That's really interesting to consider. Wow. Yeah, I, I, so cool. I want to totally pivot here Yeah, let's because do. you, you talked about him not having a formal music education and like really mm -hmm. having to catch up. And I just had a fascinating conversation with somebody today about this because it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, when you major in music in college, it's like one of the only majors that you actually have to know everything about it before you get into college. Like if you want to go to med school, like you just get into college and you take all the classes there and they teach you. But if you get in for music, you have to know how to read music already. 
Yeah. And, and you have to have a certain level of fluency in it in order to even audition. And if you don't have that, then you're just going to be playing catch up and not get what you can out of your education. Mm -hmm. And how many people does that eliminate? Yeah. It's a barrier to entry for sure. Absolutely. And I think there are, there are so many people who, yeah, maybe they had like decent music education, like general music in their school, but then they can't get into good music conservatories because they haven't been taking private lessons. Yeah. Like I actually wanted to be a flute major, believe it or not. And I went to do my flute audition at a conservatory. <laughs> um, just in case anybody listening is curious, I absolutely believe that Tina wanted to be a flute major. <laughs> And I can say that because I played a lot of flute, <laughs> many years of flute, and I am not surprised at all that Tina considered being a flute major. <laughs> I was really passionate about it. It was like the instrument I was best at. It's adorable. <laughs> Thanks. It was adorable until I got to my audition at a conservatory and the professor was not the one auditioning people. She was sick that day. And when international students are coming in, for conservatory auditions, you can't just cancel them. So they brought in a sub and he was the principal flautist at the local symphony orchestra by local, I mean, Chicago for like 22 years. And I walked into my audition and the first thing he said was, who have you studied with privately? And I said, I've never taken private flute lessons to which he replied, leave, you're wasting my time. (gasps) And since that day, I've been horrified in auditions And also, I I mean, like, yes, I'm so happy being a voice and piano major, but like, uh, I never got to do my flute audition because of that. And I would say that I went into school as a very able musician, but somebody didn't give me the chance because I didn't have a pedigree. So how many people are we cutting out? Like, even if they have good music in their schools, how many people are you cutting out? Oh my God, absolutely. And think about, think about the fact that like... (laughs) Let's talk about how we fund schools or rather how we don't fund public schools and the first things to go. What are the first things to go? The non-essential subjects. I hate labeling them as non-essential though. I know, I knew that would trigger you. Um, And I totally agree, it's bullshit because art is everywhere and it's in everything. And it is, I mean, the, the amount to which the general public, if you look at it strictly from a capitalist standpoint, which makes me ill, but if we have to be utilitarian, let's do it. If you look at it strictly from a utilitarian capitalist standpoint, uh, do you listen to music in the car? Is there music in the commercial for your small business? Is there music on your phone when it rings? There's art in everything and you can commoditize it. And it's necessary for competitive markets. So don't give me some bullshit about how art is not a legitimate career or necessary. At a minimum, at a minimum, it can be monetized. Mm-hmm. Well, which again is gross. <laughs> but like, it is. Think about like visiting a foreign country and you want to experience a foreign country. What do you do? you go to the museums, mm-hmm. you take in the music, even if it's people playing music on the streets, like you take in their art because it's part of a country's culture. Yep. And what are we saying if we don't want that to be part of our culture? We're far more concerned with our culture being a homogenous religious identity. By we, of course, I mean not fucking me. <laughs> 
Or me, for that or matter. <laughs> or probably anybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> probably. Echo chamber, echo chamber, echo chamber. <laughs> but all that is to say, I'm really glad that despite not having a formal upbringing in music, Rimsky-Korsakov still had ways of making it happen. Oh, and I mean, this is only his second opera ever. Mm-hmm. And he went on to write some really incredible pieces. I mean, symphonic and um, operatic alike. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just wonderful music. And I'm so glad that we were not deprived of his musical language and his musical perspective and what he had to say because he didn't have that formal. Because, yeah, because of a barrier to entry, which is so interesting because he was not from a poor family. He was from a noble family. He probably could have potential. This is interesting too. He could have probably potentially studied music and pursued it as a career. But his much older brother, and his father at this point was dead, I believe, his much older brother was a explorer, navigator person on the ocean, and was also the head of the School of Mathematics and what was it called? Oh, basic uh, uh, school for mathematical and navigational sciences. When he was preparing, he entered this at age 12, wanted to be in the Navy. It was a family tradition. And his brother at the time was the like headmaster or the principal of the school. And his brother was the person who funded or signed off on or both his piano lessons to quote, improve his social skills <laughs> but That's he also so funny to me yeah i know but he also started to he would take them away when he felt like rimsky korsakov was when nikolai rimsky korsakov was uh falling behind in school because mm-hmm. he was focusing too much on music so basically it's exactly what we were just talking about his brother didn't think it was a practical thing it was just this extra thing it's a way it's the way a lot of middle-class parents have to think about music uh when their kids are studying music like every every parent's like yeah take piano lessons it'll help you be good at math and yeah do theater it'll help you build your confidence but god forbid you pursue it as a career right (laughs) i'm like i get it like don't get me wrong i totally get it (laughs) it's just funny some things just never change but so his brother essentially like stopped paying for these lessons, stopped okaying these lessons. Luckily, his teacher said, all right, so your brother's not paying for lessons anymore. You should, you should just keep coming over and we'll just like, you know, play for fun. I just, I love that because I, I have this really, I don't know, call me naive, but I just have this really wonderful vision of the world being slightly more altruistic and everybody Mm. would be so much better i don't i don't think it's naive i think i think that a lot of us are pretty altruistic and i think that the people who aren't just probably need therapy (laughs) wow like (laughs) you just you just opened up a whole new world of thinking for me there But I always, I always circle back to this in my mind of like, how much art are we depriving ourselves of because of Mm -hmm. this way of thinking? Oh, And Rimsky-Korsakov is just one of those people we can point to and say, see, we would have been deprived of this. Absolutely. Well, and it also, it, it 
runs directly in line with the conversations that the opera and the classical music community are having around diversity and inclusion right now. Like, mm -hmm. okay, you want more representation in your casting, but you're just, oh gosh, there just aren't that many musicians of color. Well, why aren't there that many musicians of color? Mm -hmm. Is it because the programs that they would need to come from in order to be able to do the things that you want them to do for your productions, need them to have had formal training before they ever reached the age of 18? And where did they get that from? Where would they have gotten that from? Mm -hmm. And, and they, they is extremely broad. Where, where would a good percentage of BIPOC students goodly percentage of BIPOC students going to urban schools or underfunded schools because of redlining. Mm -hmm. This is a whole can of worms. Thanks to Rimsky Korsakov. Yeah, which is freaking funny. It's funny to me. It is funny to me because he was not poor. No. <laughs> he no. could have done this. Like he could have probably thrown a tantrum and just done it. And he, and he did do it, but he did it without, like, support. Like, he didn't have the patronage yeah. of, his, of his family's name, I guess. The point being that, like, he didn't not get an education because he didn't have access to an education. Like, he could have probably accessed that education. He fell in with a group of people who were kind of anti-education. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, kind of the hipster thing to do, to be like... Fuck the conservatories. Our music is cooler because we're not all stuffy and conservatory people. Yes, and there is so something to be said for that. And every once in a while, that kind of like anti-conservatory revolution comes around. Oh, hell yeah. You need some rock and, and we roll need musicians. It. Absolutely, you need it. It is funny, though, that he then went on to be a conservatory professor, <laughs> which caused a little bit of a rift with that group, yep. as I'm sure yep. you can imagine. And then when he married... Um, I'm gonna get her name wrong again. Nadevka, Nadevda. Where did it go? My notes have disappeared. Nadezhda. 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 Um, so she was also she was classically trained. Now, of course, she was a woman, so probably not like mm -hmm. to an incredibly high degree. But she's been compared to Clara Schumann and Robert Schumann. Okay, like, so like a team. I am going to I'm going to stop and and backpedal to what you just said. Classically trained, but she's a woman, so probably not to a high degree. That's actually untrue because oh. I mean, if you think about Clara Schumann, if you think about Nannerl Mozart, they were very highly trained and Nannerl was probably a better musician than her brother was but because she was a woman she was forced to stop touring that's a good point to stop composing so, so it could be that she and, was... and like fanny mendelssohn felix mendelssohn actually like signed his name to some of her pieces <gasps> i mean i'm sure it was just to get Deuce. them published because she's a woman so at any rate sorry sorry no that's pedal. a great that's a great call out that's a good point because yeah you're right like she could be trained within an inch of her life and it wouldn't matter. Because <laughs> she's a woman. Because ovaries. She has a vagina. Um, so anyhow, they had a lovely partnership, though. I love that. Uh, and they, 
he would write and she would critique him and she would critique him very astutely and uh, viciously isn't the right word but like she was she was demanding like she she wanted him to do well and she wasn't going to just like let some shit slide and so i think that that combined with his synesthesia combined with the fact that he found himself teaching a class that he was so ill-equipped to teach and had to just like just like like fake it till you make it like he had to just every morning i'm going to teach this today i got to learn everything i can it's like me preparing for the 60 second overview of composers lives i didn't know anything about nikolai krimsky korsakov six hours ago (laughs) (laughs) except maybe flight of the bumblebee which honestly no i didn't (laughs) six hours ago no two hours ago yes i did uh he wrote flight of the bumblebee which is the one that everybody knows but if you don't it goes we actually did a choral version of it in high school and the words were oh yeah that's good that's way better than what i just did yeah 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 um yeah so one more track that i want to get on please and you haven't heard this and i would highly recommend you to check out i'll send the youtube video that i watched because it's it's like a film version where you know they did it on the sound stage and it's like very 1970s but it is some of the healthiest singing i have heard in a long time it's just some damn good singing cool. and it's really hard for me to enjoy that as a singer myself um but it's it's fun to watch and it's really great to listen to and the music if you were just listening to the music there's nothing that would indicate that it's a comedy Mm -hmm. and i i don't really know how i feel about it being a comedy because it just it seems like are we are we talking specifically about may night now yeah yeah may night um it, it just seems like it's a scaffolding that is an occasional like comedy delivering mechanism but it's hmm. really I, it, it just doesn't do it for me in the comedy realm that's a really great image i love that a scaffolding that occasionally what how did you say that is a, a scaff- comedy delivering mechanism it's a comedy delivering mechanism wow i that is astute yeah that's how i felt as you explained it to me i think that it's just got a bunch of cheap laughs in it. I don't even think it's a bunch. Yeah, it's a handful. It's, it's a handful it's of like, cheap laughs. I, I wouldn't even, I would say it's like a lighter I can't call it light opera because that calls to mind Gilbert and Sullivan. Right. So I would say it's lush Russian music with a frothy <laughs> plot line. <laughs> yeah, I can get down with that. So that's cool. There's value there, though. I mean, you can take the music out of context and sing it in recitals and use it as underscoring and things like that and just mm-hmm. appreciate the music. But I agree that the story itself, oh, man, I just wish it was, it makes me want to, it makes me want to listen to Rusalka. It also makes me wish that Rusalka was about not the Little Mermaid and just about this Rusalka or something. I also want to know about that guy eating fritters. <laughs> I I will definitely post the one that I watched because somebody actually just posted it on YouTube this month. Oh, really? Um, and there were replies like, this was excellent. Thank you. So like somebody cares, like some niche world cares about this. But the whoever posted it took the time to put English translations in. 
Oh, and they give you a scene synopsis at the beginning of every scene oh, as well. That's so kind. thank you. Whoever did that just like took the time to put yeah, we'll a really it. obscure opera on YouTube. <laughs> like this is only his second opera. And, and yeah, it's like a comedy that doesn't quite deliver on the comedy, but I mean, you got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make bad art. It's not that it's bad art, but it's like, no. it's not the pinnacle of what his art becomes. No, and you know what? As somebody who tries to create some stuff, like, sometimes the stuff that you create is just not your best stuff, but still entertaining. And that's okay, because you got to exercise that muscle. Yeah. And because people still need to be entertained. Otherwise, yeah. why the fuck are we making a podcast and getting drunk every week, Tina? Because it's fun. Exactly. We want to be entertained. Even I, if nobody listens to this. Yeah, if I'm, nobody I listens. I am entertained. I am entertained. <laughs> I enjoy our weekly conversations. I do too. <laughs> if anybody else enjoys our conversations and they want to let us know about it, they can send us an email at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. And they can also check out our Facebook page, our Instagram, or visit our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Yes, ma'am. And you can also subscribe to the show now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Recently, I had to explain to my lovely mother, she gave me a call and said, Amanda, um, I want to I wanna watch your podcasts, but I don't know how. Bless her heart. So then I walked her through how to listen <laughs> to our podcast. It's very difficult. But anyhow, once you find our podcast, and honestly, if you can't find it through any of the places, if you're not a podcast person, how are you listening to this, first of all? And second of all, just go to the website, www.operaplothappyhour.com. It's that easy. While you're there, um, or while you're on our Facebook page, or while you're on whatever platform you listen to podcasts through, please, please, please rate and review us because we like it and it helps other people find the show speaking of rates and reviews i just want to give a shout out to sweet treesis who left us a really awesome review on itunes oh so whoever you are sweet treesis thank sweet you treesis. i really <laughs> like that a lot oh that's funny all right got my opera book here okay you ready Next week's composer is Giuseppe Verdi. Ah, oh, Verdi. Okay. Joe Green. Joe Green. That's funny. I never put that together. That's cute. All right. Verdi. Happy researching. That's, thank you. This should be, I don't, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be another week before I research it, let's be honest. You might want to start before Tuesday because Verdi is going to be Well, I would, but somebody said they would be my accountability partner and they haven't once reminded me. I need accountability to be your accountability partner, I think. <laughs> Who's going to be your accountability partner? That you are. You're going to remind me to remind you. Oh, man, this is like an episode of The Office. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave us with a little quote here from Matt Dobkin, and it's from a publication, Getting Opera, a guide for the cultured but confused. Once you realize that opera is in fact flawed, and that opera is an art form both to be admired and to poke fun at, then I think you're more likely to get over any hesitation you may have. <laughs>